Father, we ask as we turn now to the preaching of your word that you will be exalted. For the sake of your great name, help us to see and treasure you as you have revealed yourself. We need you to show us the depths of your truth. Give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and the desire to submit and to obey your word. Let your holiness be our delight, Father. Strengthen us and give us the assurance of your everlasting goodness and mercy. Lord, teach us to walk in your ways and transform us into the likeness of your Son. May your light shine on your Son and may we see him as our hope and our joy. Lord, we pray that you will supernaturally impart new life to any here who are separated from you. We pray that by your grace you will give faith where there's unbelief. We pray that you will grant repentance and faith. Father, preserve us, keep us, O God, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Father, as you do it for us, we pray that you'll do it for the 200,000 Afshari in Iran. Lord, a precious people who have turned to false gods, gods of their own making. Lord, they see Christ as only as a good man. Lord, how terribly, awfully wrong they are. How low they have set their sights. Father, I pray that by your miraculous indwelling of your spirit, that you will give them eyes to see Jesus, that they will confess their sin and their transgression against you, and that you will save that people. Lord, from that people, that you will establish churches who worship you as we are here this morning. Father, may you give them the grace that they need to adore you and to have you forever. Lord, we pray for Chris and Megan Guthrie with Wycliffe Translators. Lord, what a precious work that they do. It is a work that is from your very heart, Father, to give people your word. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen them today, that you will encourage them in the work that they do. Pray that you'll be with their family and guard them and keep them. May your steadfast love help them to endure. Lord, we pray for Pastor Sean Branscombe, Pillar Church DC, and the, the trials that he faces, Lord, the, the brick walls that seem to be building up all around him and the people. Lord, we pray that you will break them down. Lord, Pastor Sean cannot do it. Pillar Church DC cannot do it on their own. So, Father, go before them. Lord, prepare hearts and minds, and may you enable Pastor Sean to preach powerfully today according to your truth. May it not fall on deaf ears, and may the people respond and obey. And Lord, may more come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for other churches here in our county. Lord, over 30 churches here. Lord, we all claim to know Jesus. But Father, it's one thing to claim it. It's another to truly know and to desire and to have and to flourish in Jesus. So Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you will make that happen. 
I pray that the churches here in our county will hold fast to the truth of your word. No matter what comes against us, no matter where culture goes, where the world points us to, may we, by your spirit, be steadfast in upholding truth and be a light in darkness. And may your love be evident in us proclaiming truth and holding on to it. Lord, we pray for our brother, Pastor Rick Cruikshank with Hanover Baptist. And Lord, what a, what a privilege and an honor it is to, to partner with them in, in spreading your word. Lord, give Pastor Rick what he needs. Give him the words to preach this morning. And Lord, again, be with us. All of this we ask in your son's precious name. Amen. In your Bibles, please turn to... 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're looking at verses 1 through 19. It's on page 960 in the church Bible. If you're in need of a Bible and you have not yet grabbed one off the cart in the back, please raise your hand and and we'll get one to you. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, please keep it. We want to give you a copy of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, and please stand as I read God's inerrant word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church." Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others 
than 10,000 words in a tongue. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, help us to see the gift of your word and the immense joy given through Jesus. Amen. Many of you know for several years, I've been a volunteer teacher of theology overseas, helping brothers who've been called to pastoral ministry but have not had the opportunity to have that theological training and education to really ground them in the truth. In their context, it's really difficult to step away from ministry and to get the training. So there are ministries that go to them, who bring the training to them. It's an important part of the strengthening of the global church. This training helps our brothers to rightly handle the Bible so they can preach and teach God's Word to their people. I try to go at least once a year, and I love doing it. I absolutely love it. I look forward to it. I love meeting new brothers and hearing their passion for the gospel to advance upward in their church and outward throughout their country. Being with our brothers fills me with hope and joy because I know that we're not alone in advancing the gospel. God is calling a people all around the world to Himself. He is graciously calling His children home all over the world. Not one time, though, have I been where English is the primary language spoken. Every time I've gone, our team has needed an interpreter. The interpreter is a trusted brother, and he is crucial in the training. The training cannot take place if the interpreter is not there. The team can, we can bring all that we've learned in seminary, We can bring what we've learned in ministry in our own study of God's Word, but we don't speak the language. Nothing will be received by our teaching unless our brothers understand it. There's no benefit. We need interpreters for the pastors to grasp the glorious truths of our faith. Now normally when I go, it's a small group of us in a tiny room, and from sunup to sundown, We have long days with lots and lots of material to go over. Typically, the interpreter and I are up front, and the way it works is that every time I speak, there's a delay in what I'm saying and in what the pastors receive because of the language difference. I teach a point, and then the interpreter translates it, and then the pastors are able to hear it and acknowledge and digest it. If they say something in reverse, I need the interpretation to understand what they're saying. That's how crucial the interpreter is. There have been times when the interpreter doesn't understand what I'm saying, and we have to have a little side conversation in order to help him understand what I'm trying to say, and then the interpreter gives the teaching point in their language. Without the interpreter, teaching will not take place in that context. It doesn't matter how thoughtful and clear I am. It doesn't matter how loving I am. The men are no better off if they can't grasp what's been said. 
Now, what's incredible and exhilarating, though, is that when all of us reach at the end of the training or at some point in the training, when someone says, Amen, no one needs a translation for Amen. Truth has been spoken and understood by all. The word amen has gone wherever the gospel has been spread. When we, we can be struggling with a concept and then it's explained and understood and someone says amen and the whole class nods their head in agreement and we have broken out into worship of our great God because of the truth that, that we have all understood. It is amazing. Our brothers can be praying in their language and the trainers were praying in our language. But when we hear amen, we all understand what it means. But for everything else in the class, the interpreter is needed. The need of an interpreter and everyone else who's part of the gathering to be able to say amen is part of what we're looking at this morning. No one here needs an interpreter for what I'm saying with the words that's coming out of my mouth. But our text mentions times when the church gathers and things are said that require interpretation because Paul says mysteries in the Spirit are being spoken. And even then, it's only a benefit to the whole church when some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching is given. The revelation being given is a gift from God that is a benefit for the whole church. The gift of prophecy spoken of in our passage is part of the spiritual gifts that if you remember when we began chapter 12, I said that chapters 12 through 14 are part of a larger unit about corporate worship. Together they talk about their proper use of the spiritual gifts in worship and when the church gathers. In chapter 12, we're told that the spiritual gifts is God Himself working and moving among His people for their good. He's helping His people to do the good works of ministry. Every believer is a minister of the gospel. And the Spirit empowers each and every one of us to serve the body and to help build it up in worship and ministry by giving us gifts that strengthen the body. Paul said we are one body with many members. The body functions together by the members serving the body with their gifts. Then in chapter 13, Paul calls us to costly, sacrificial, Christ-like love. He called it the more excellent way. Every Christian is to make love, and we're talking godly love, our priority. It is the key to living the Christian life and using our spiritual gifts properly in a God-honoring, Christ-like way. We finished up chapter 13 last week, but we have not left the theme of love. The first two words of chapter 14 are pursue love. We are to actively seek to love one another and those God has put in our lives. And we are to look for ways to share 
God's love. This love that God has so abundantly shared with us by pouring us in pouring into us this immense love that he has for his son, he's given to us. And he says, pursue love. This love that is the lifeblood of the saints. It is the essence of who we are. Love is to be valued and pursued and given. That's the way of the saints. That's the way of the church. The question about love then is do we love well? Are you pursuing love and do you love well? When you come to worship with your brothers and sisters, do you love them well? When you come to worship, are you thinking of your brothers and sisters? When you're praying, do you include them in your prayers? Do you love them well when you're fellowshipping? Do you love them well in your service to the body and to the ministry of others? Are you loving your brothers and sisters well by pointing them to Jesus, the best hope and treasure possible? Do we love well in dealing with sin? Do we love well when someone is hurting? We need to love them to even know when they're hurting. Do we love well when it's inconvenient or costly or hard? And now while love is to be constantly on our minds, it is the most excellent way we are to pursue love We are to follow the way of love in everything that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. Chapter 14 turns our attention in love to the spiritual gifts. If you remember at the end of chapter 12 and verse 31, Paul said, earnestly desire the higher gifts. While we are to pursue love, Paul does not mean to pursue it at the expense of of the spiritual gifts. Now in many ways chapter 14 is a hard chapter. If you struggled a few minutes ago when when I read it, you're not alone. I struggled with this text for several weeks. I wrestled with it and I think I'm only beginning to to understand how deep and how far and how awesome this text is from God. It's hard for us because Paul says in verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And later on, he speaks of, um, he talks of speaking in tongues. Now, many of us, when we hear the word prophecy today and of speaking in tongues, we immediately think of Pentecostals and Charismatics who abuse Scripture and they use it for their selfish gain. Mental images may become to mind of televangelists who manipulate people into doing what they want, normally for some kind of financial gain for themselves. The prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement has butchered the Christian faith. And it's gone all over the world. This false gospel has spread all over the world. Our brothers are battling this just as much as we are. And sometimes more so. 
Because the only form of Christianity that's been exposed to the people is this false gospel of prosperity. And because they've hijacked the gifts, we have honestly, many of us have reacted in fear of the gifts, and maybe some of us have tried to avoid the topic. But Paul is speaking of something here that is relevant for us this morning. All of Scripture is given by God. It is inspired. It is inerrant. So we approach this passage with reverence and humility, knowing that this truth is for our lives, is for our church. Chapter 14, as hard as it is, is for all of us. The more we rightly know and we understand God's truth, the better we can combat the evil of the prosperity gospel and the stronger our church will be. What Paul is doing here is now that the foundation of love has been laid, he can speak in more detail about earnestly desiring the higher gifts. And he tells us why. Knowing why is super important when we're being told something. It gives the support and it justifies what's being said. For you parents, think, think of your children. When we tell them to do something, we can tell them and explain to them why and they understand why they're more likely to do it on their own. In this case, Paul will highlight prophecy as the spiritual gift that promotes the principle of love better than speaking in tongues. You see, the Corinthians, they, they had a problem along with everything else that he's already discussed with them. They had a problem that he wants to address. It appears that Paul had heard that there was a lot of speaking in tongues going on in the worship services without any kind of interpretation. And the Corinthians were using the tongue speaking as a measure for how spiritual a person was. Those speaking in tongues thought it strengthened their faith in God, even if the rest of the church did not find it beneficial. But notice in our text, notice that Paul does not tell the Corinthians to stop speaking in tongues. He instead turns their attention to what's good for the whole church. He prioritizes the building up of the body. He in essence says, and this is the summary of our text, when the church gathers, building up the body is far greater than individual gain. When the church gathers, building up the body is far greater than individual gain. Now remember, this is given in context of the church being together. The spiritual gifts being given for the strengthening of the body, the Christian faith, is a deeply personal faith, but it's not a private faith. The Christian life is not me, it's we. It's all of us together. So what's being said here is that in worship, corporate edification has superior value over looking for individual gain. But don't think that individual members are left out when we're focused on the whole body. 
God has designed it that when we focus on strengthening the body, the individual is strengthened, but it's multiplied so that the body, the whole body, benefits, not just individual members. The spiritual gifts are given to edify, to strengthen and build up the whole church body rather than just individuals, certain ones of us. We're told to worship God and serve in ways that strengthen and encourage and comfort others. The Christian life is never lived in isolation. Even when we gather, it's not a private experience with worship. It's a corporate experience together in worship. If you've repented of your sin and and you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then you are part of a much bigger family. And because we can't connect with every brother and sister around the world in God's family... God has put us in local expressions of His church. We are one body here with many members. Now some may say that the the individuals make up the body of Christ, and that is true. We have individual experiences. God has worked in the lives of His people that's deeply personal, in deeply personal ways. But the experiences and the gifts that God gives to individual members are for the benefit of the whole church. None of us should come to our gatherings to seek to gain something solely for ourselves. We should come with our attention toward God to worship Him and give Him what He rightly deserves. And with our brothers and sisters worship Him And then look for ways to lovingly use our gifts for each other, for the body, to strengthen one another. With this principle of focusing on what's good for the body, Paul lays out three things in our text this morning. First, we are to pursue what is better for the church. Second, we are to seek edification that is intelligible so the church will benefit. And third, the mind must be engaged in worship to build the church up. I'll touch on each of these, and then at the end I will explain prophecy mentioned in our text in more detail and give you some examples. Number one, pursue what is better for the church. In verses 1 through 5, we are to strive in love for what is good for the whole body. And specifically, the church is to desire, eagerly desire, it says, the gift of prophecy. That's what Paul says in verse 1. Paul then compares the gift of tongues with the gift of prophecy. Look with me, please, at at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church 
may be built up. Do you see Paul's focus here? Do you see what's at stake? Paul does not discount or chastise the Corinthians for speaking in tongues. He says your focus is not high enough. He says it's not all-encompassing of the whole church. It's not broad enough in what you're focusing on. You're looking inward, not outward, as you should. When we gather, we are to seek what is good for the whole body. Now let's pause here just for a moment and remember some, a few things about the Corinthians. In previous chapters, Paul has pointed out their divisiveness, their selfishness, their immaturity, their lack of understanding, and their diverted focus away from the gospel. You would think that with all that, Paul would, would tell them to, to cease, that these immature Christian, um, selfish Christians can't handle this, that they need to stop, but he doesn't. He says their focus is not high enough, it's not broad enough. Notice in verse 1, the command to earnestly desire prophecy. This is a command, not a suggestion, it's not a recommendation. Through Paul, God says, this is God's word, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And while this text was not written to us, Paul was not writing to us, this text is written for us today. This is a command from God. Just like in the previous chapter where love applies to all Christians, this command applies to all believers. Christians do not have an option here. We either pursue love and earnestly desire prophecy, or we're disobedient. We don't get to say, but I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this. Or I've seen it abused and I don't want to be involved with it. Nor can we say, I'm not called to this, or let me think about it. I need to understand it first before I pursue it, before I desire it. Nor can we say, I'll pray about it. You know, typically when, when we say that, what we mean is, not yet. Well, delayed obedience is disobedience in God's eyes. And God says that we are to do this. Now, cessationists will say that this verse does not apply to them. That Paul was only speaking to the Corinthians in the first century. Seeking to prophesy does not apply to the 21st century Christian. It's really hard to pull that out in this text, in the context of this passage. I think the abuse of the gifts has more weight in their application of that than what they understand the Scripture here. This is hard for us. It's, it's strange for us. But it doesn't give us an out to skip over it or to ignore it. If you're a cessationist here, meaning you believe the gifts ceased in the first century, I implore you to, to consider this. Maybe when I get to defining prophecy and its use today, you will be more willing to consider this command. As I've said before, I'm, I'm a cautionary continuationist with the spiritual gifts. Nowhere in Scripture do I see 
that they have ceased, that, that the gifts have ended. Chapter 13 speaks to one day the gifts will cease, but that's when Christ returns and there's no more use for the gifts. But I don't think the gift of prophecy is what's widely seen today. Scriptures describe it differently than what's been pilfered through false teachers and false prophets. More on that a little later. Here, the command is to earnestly desire prophecy. And it's because it has more value than tongues in a corporate setting. Because of its edifying effect on the body. Again, the focus is on what's good for the whole church body. The individual gift of prophecy is for corporate benefit. It's given for the churches, looking again at the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, the building up of the church. This makes it more helpful to the body than speaking in tongues unless the tongues are interpreted, it says in verse 5. Tongues in general are understood as prayer. Prayer is perfectly valid in corporate worship. We bathe our worship services in prayer as we ought. And if worship was only about the individual member and God connecting, then the Corinthians using tongues as a good measure for how spiritual they are with God, then that would be okay. That would make sense. But public worship of God is what is at the heart of Paul's message here. The real speaking of tongues is not some kind of, of babbling, but it's spirit-inspired prayer. But the rest of the corporate body cannot engage. They cannot engage in all of that together. Paul calls it an utterance of the mysteries of the Spirit. This is the same as what he pointed to in chapter 13, verse 2. Uttering mysteries of the Spirit is not new, special understandings. It's the ability to speak them to God in prayer. Our text says those speaking in tongues are strengthened and built up. They themselves are built up. But the body is left out. When believers gather together, love implores us to use our gifts for the good of the whole body. But Paul is not weighing speaking in tongues and prophecy and telling us which one of those is better. He's weighing what's better for the church when the body gathers. Do you see the difference? Worship is meant to be a corporate experience where God is given great reverence and praise, and the body shares in that fellowship together and in that adoration, and the whole body is strengthened in that as we turn towards God, and everyone benefits. That's why Paul gives that caveat in verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, and we've already looked at why, because of the edification for the whole body, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Do you see Paul's focus? It's on the church body as a whole. Paul said he would like everyone to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy unless the tongue's interpreted. 
so that the church is restored and rejuvenated and renewed and can keep going together. Tongues just in themselves are unintelligible and help no one unless they're interpreted. They help no one else unless they're interpreted. When they're interpreted, the benefit is equal to prophecy because the whole church then hears and is strengthened. In other words, Paul wants everyone to participate in worship and be closely communicating with God. But it doesn't happen that way. So what's good for the whole body to grow and be built up should be considered. The edification of the church is what's more important. It's a more important concern. Next, in verses 6 through 12, we are to seek edification that's intelligible so that the church will benefit. Having said that prophecy is better for the church than tongues because of the benefit on the whole body, Paul now turns to speaking in clear ways so that it's understood. That's the key to edifying speech with the Holy Spirit moving in and out. The key is speaking clearly and understandably. Paul gives an example in verse 6 saying, Now brothers, if I come speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, how can I benefit you unless you understand the substance of what I'm saying? He's given examples then with uh, musical instruments and a military bugle. Paul is demonstrating with those examples that sounds must be heard and clearly recognized for it to do any good. Instruments are useless unless distinct notes are able to be played and heard. If there's no tune, there can be no song to enjoy. The distinct notes and melodies are needed for it to make any sense. Otherwise, it's a waste of time to those who are hearing it. Paul is saying here to look at what's useful for the church. And if it's not useful, then the church will not benefit. And the church is to communicate in ways that that make sense. And that's what he says in verse Verses 9 through 11. Please look with me. Beginning in in verse 9 through 11. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. This is just like when I go overseas. The pastors need an interpreter to understand what I'm saying. I could say the simplest phrase, repent and believe, and there would be blank faces because it's not understood. The brothers still need to be able to translate that as simple as it is for there to be any acknowledgement and acceptance. But when they know what it says, they can accept it. They receive it. They think on it and they accept it. It becomes theirs. He sums this up for us in verse 12. So 
so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The Corinthians should apply the same approach that Paul gave about the musical instruments, the bugle, and communicating in languages to their own use of spiritual gifts. He's not chastising them for seeking spiritual things. He wants them to do that with with great eagerness, to be zealous for spiritual insights that come from God. But they need to be seeking in a way that benefits the whole church body. Their seeking needs to be redirected. They need to exercise their spiritual gifts with love for the building up of the body. And it's in ways that the church can clearly recognize and is then strengthened and it's reinforced with truth. Paul is not interested in suppressing their gifts or the Spirit working in and and among them. He wants them to see that their gifts are for community-building, church-strengthening gifts. Paul wants them to excel in building up the church. Paul is really emphasizing how important the building up of the church really is. If the church is not built up, then individual members will be picked off one by one. The members are are sheep who are part of a flock. The flock gives increased love and encouragement and guards against unbelief and shields from wayward drifting. We protect one another and we strengthen one another. We help one another. Picture a house that's made out of popsicle sticks. If you're really careful, you can arrange every popsicle stick to where they will stand and support each other and form a house. But if just one stick is removed, what happens? The whole house comes tumbling down. All the sticks are just lying in a pile. But what if you glue the sticks together? What if you use something that's interwoven between every single stick and they're bound together and they're supported? If one stick falls, the rest of the house stays intact. It's still standing. And while the house is still standing, you can still get that other stick and bring it back to the house and it's complete again and it's strong and it's there, it's lasting. See... That's the way we build the church up. The house is here for God's people who are called in our area and we strengthen together through the Holy Spirit. This stresses that when the church gathers, the health and the building up of the whole body is to be emphasized, not individual gain. The basis of corporate worship is not a personal experience. It's the building up of the body. That's the corporate worship aspect. It's not a corporate gathering of individual experiences. It's a corporate worship experience that we all enjoy together. And it's to be done in ways that are clear and intelligible and God-honoring. Third, the mind must be engaged to build the church up. Now in verses 1 through 12, Paul has said that when the church gathers, we are to pursue what's good for the body 
and it's to be clear and understandable so that the whole body will be strengthened by it. Now in verses 13 through 19, Paul turns to the mind and says, Our minds must be part of worship. Paul uses himself as an example and says he will engage both his spirit and his mind in worship. He will speak in tongues, but in worship he'll be sure to consider the rest of the body and therefore have interpretation of tongues and pray for it even, he tells them, so that the body is edified. And him considering this can only happen if his mind is engaged in the worship. Worship is a corporate experience that fills the spirit with joy and is understood in the mind. Paul says he wants everyone to be able to say amen. That only comes from understanding what's going on, what's happening in our minds and then responding to it in our hearts. For this to take place, Paul gives stipulations for those who are speaking in tongues He says they should pray for an interpretation. Again, thinking of the whole body, they are to pray for interpretation. An intelligible word is needed. And that requires the mind to be engaged in worship. To really emphasize how important the mind is in worship, please look with me at verse 19 of what Paul says. He says, nevertheless, he just said he thanks God that he speaks in tongues more than them all. But nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Five words spoken with the mind means it's intelligible. This would be intelligible and full of truth. It would be uplifting for the rest of the church. What uplifts the church is the truth that we know that exists in God's Word. This is a mind that seeks the truth. It's a mind that knows the truth. It's a mind that knows Scripture and finds Jesus because He is the truth. Jesus quoted Scripture when speaking to others and giving them truth. Scripture is His words. They're about Him. And He says, if they abide in us... If His words abide in us, they fill our minds with uplifting truth. They guard the mind from saying something in error. They shape how we approach our life in this world. Fill your mind, in other words, with God's words. Fill your mind with truth so that you can properly engage in corporate worship and great honor and give Him honor in worship. Teach your children Read it together and fill your minds with this uplifting truth. Uplift each other with God's Word. The mind is crucial. So many today want the spiritual experience in worship, but their minds are not engaged. It becomes based on emotion and it becomes nonsensical. But for it to be true worship experience, the mind must be part of it. The mind is deeply valuable And it's needed in worship. The mind is what recognizes truth. It distinguishes between fact and myth. And it tells the heart, that's true. That's fact. That that is God's word. And the heart is what then accepts it and desires it and wants it. 
This is a new heart that's been given freely by God for new life in Christ in order to be with Him. It's a mind that's being renewed day by day to be more like Christ with our thoughts and our understanding of His glory. Only believers have this transformation taking place. Only believers can enjoy the spiritual experience of true worship and the building up of the body to to preserve us for that day when Christ returns. Only believers can delight in the truth of God's Word and know that they're being prepared for an eternity with God where all the mysteries of the Spirit will be revealed and known and adored. That means that if you're here today, if you're here today and you're not a believer, then friend, the truth of God is not in you. You have rejected what you know to be truth about God. There's no mystery to who God is. Your heart is hard and cold to the truth of who God is. And your sin is evidence against you. God will judge you in your sin and you will reap an eternity that is separated from His love and completely apart from Him. But today, today God is calling sinners to repent and trust in Jesus for salvation. Repent of your sin that has separated you from God and turn to the only one who defeated sin and death and evil through His own death and resurrection. This God who knows all things knows you and He knows what you need. The mystery is not knowing who God is, but it's understanding why is He so loving towards us? Why does He give sinners new life in Jesus? Why does He make them His own? And why does He speak to us through His Word to tell us about Jesus? Why does He provide a way of salvation through His Son, Jesus? Don't leave here today without seeing the truth of who Jesus is. He's the only one who who the prophets spoke of in the Old Testament and the writers point to in the New Testament who gives new life. He's the only hope of salvation and He is the best and sure hope of salvation. In Jesus, a life that was once separated from God is united to Him to enjoy His grace and mercy and goodness and love. For those of us who have already received God's grace, who He's brought into the church, this morning Paul is telling us that when we gather, we focus on the building up of the body. The whole body takes priority. And we do this by pursuing what's best for the church, by seeking edification that's intelligible so that the whole church will benefit, and by engaging our minds in worship. He tells us this in the context of the command to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. Lastly, allow me to briefly explain prophecy mentioned in our text here, and give you some examples for us to consider today. Knowing that there's more that we will cover through the rest of chapter 14. I think the best place to start is to say simply what prophecy is not. 
prophecy mentioned here is not some new type of revelation that's added to Scripture, nor is it equal to Scripture. We'll see later on in verse 30 that all prophecy is based on revelation. But these revelations are not new Scriptures. Don't think of the book of Revelation and think that's what we're talking about. It's not added to Scripture. The gift of prophecy is not equal and does not add to the Bible. It's under the authority of the Bible. It must be tested to be in line with what God says in the Bible. It's more along the lines of what Paul says in Ephesians 1.17, where he prays that a spirit of wisdom and revelation would be given to believers. Nor is prophecy some type of intuition or educated guess. It can't be ginned up. It can't be garnered by mantras or saying nuances or some type of ritual. Prophecy is the believer's account of divine revelation. Prophecy is the believer's account of a divine revelation. It's an intelligible word given from God for the upbuilding of the church, for the upbuilding, the encouragement, the comfort, the consolation of the church. And we're going to get more into it in two weeks when we return to 1 Corinthians after Easter celebrating the resurrection. But let me point you to verse 25, where prophecy can reveal secrets of the heart. Sam Storms, I've mentioned him previously, points out in other places in the New Testament, and I quote, Prophecy can be a warning, a scripture passage that applies, especially at this moment in time to a person's life, a word of encouragement, an invitation to some ministry opportunity, guidance for decision-making. It may be a revelation of some illness of which God intends to heal you of. It may be that the prophetic word concerns some spiritual gift and God intends to impart to a person. End of quote. And we'll get into more of what this means in a few weeks, where God's perfect word can be misunderstood. It can be misinterpreted and misapplied. And that's why we are to test everything. The gift of prophecy is not inspired, it's infallible. Okay, it's not inspired, but it is an infallible word from an infallible God given to imperfect believers who are prone to make mistakes and make errors. That's why we are to test it. But... None of this is reason to discount the gift. It is something that every believer is to earnestly desire so that the whole church is built up and we're stronger because of it. Let's pray.